we're going to continue our study on Hebrews called Jesus the Mediator of a New and Better Covenant or a New and Better Testament. And we're on teaching number 13, which is two reasons to rest in the New Testament of grace, or another title would be two reasons to enter God's rest. And this is part two. We looked at part one last week, and we looked at the first reason the writer of Hebrews exhorted his Jewish brothers and sisters when he exhorted them to exit the works of the Old Testament of law and to enter through faith the rest of God or the New Testament of grace established in the blood of Jesus, which is God's Sabbath rest that the writer of Hebrews wrote about. And God's Sabbath's rest is where a person eternally rests from seeking God's forgiveness of sins and cleansing from sins because they know they are eternally forgiven for all sins and eternally cleansed from all sin. So we rest in God's spiritual rest. Now, in this study, we're going to look at the second reason the writer of Hebrews exhorts his Jewish brothers and sisters to exit the works of the old covenant of law, Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, to exit the works of the old covenant of law and enter through faith the new covenant of grace or to enter God's Sabbath rest where we cease working to be right with God and we trust completely in Jesus that he has made us right with God. Now, in Hebrews 4.11, the writer of Hebrews writes to the Hebrew people telling them this, Let us therefore, the therefore meaning because there remains a spiritual rest, there remains a Sabbath rest of God where we cease from our works because God rested from his works, we rest from our works. There's nothing left for us to do to be right with God, to have confidence before God, to be at peace with God, to be forgiven by God to be righteous before God, to be clean of all sins. There's nothing we have to do because Jesus did it all. If there's anything we have to do, then Jesus didn't do it all. And so we're resting in what he did for us at the cross. So it says here, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, or don't let anyone keep you from entering into the new covenant of grace. Don't let anything keep you from entering into the fullness of what Christ did for you at the cross. Now, the writer of Hebrews, again, gives two reasons for why Jewish people should make every effort to enter God's spiritual rest, the promised land of grace. And the first reason is so that no one will perish in judgment or in wrath when God removes all sin and sinners from the earth in preparation for the new earth where only the righteous will live. This comes out of Hebrews 4.11, says, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Their example of disobedience would be unbelief of the generation in Numbers 13 and 14 who refused to go into the promised land of Canaan. That generation serves as an example to the generation of AD 65 who were at the edge of the promised land of grace yet they were wavering whether to go into the new covenant of grace, and they were wavering in unbelief. And they were about to turn around and go back and wander in the desert of law, the desert of Leviticus that was no longer in operation because the death of Jesus brought the old covenant or the Old Testament to an end. Now, we looked at that very in-depth last week in teaching number 12. We looked at the word perish, which is being cut off from eternal life. 
not being able to live in the kingdom of God or in the new heaven and new earth that's coming. So we looked at all the verses of that in Hebrews teaching number 12 last week. So we won't go into what perish means and all the verses that we read last week. But if anybody missed it, they can go back to Hebrews teaching number 12. Now, tonight we're going to look at reason number two that the writer of Hebrews gives to enter God's rest of grace. Again, which is resting in the New Testament of grace. We're not talking about books. We're talking about the blood of Christ, resting in what Christ did for us on the cross. So reason number two, we're looking at the reason which is resting in the New Testament of grace established in the blood of Jesus, where we have full forgiveness of sins and complete cleansing from sins. That's the New Testament of grace. Reason number two to enter into the New Testament of grace is because they should exit the Old Testament of law, they being the Hebrew people whom this was written to. They should exit the Old Testament of law and enter God's Sabbath rest because the Word of God, in Hebrews 4 12, it talks about the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. That's referring to, and I'll show you momentarily, to the two great commandments of the law of Moses and to the Ten Commandments of the law of Moses. It's referring to the Old Testament. So the second reason that they should exit the Old Testament of law and enter God's Sabbath rest is because the Word of God, that's the two great commandments and the Ten Commandments, which is the Old Testament of law, the Word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart which is the standard of judgment. The Word of God or the two great commandments and the Ten Commandments is the standard that God will judge people based upon. So look at Hebrews 4, 11, and 12, starting with verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the Word of God is is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. It shows us what's going on inside of us. The Word of God here is an x-ray machine. It reveals what's going on in our thoughts. It reveals what's going on in our hearts, our desires. Verse 13 As the Word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Now, typically, when a pastor or a small group leader or a Sunday school teacher or a believer comes across Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and they see, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, they immediately think it's talking about the Bible. But the problem with that is the Bible wasn't in existence in A.D. 65. So it's an impossibility that Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when it says the word of God, it's impossible that that's talking about the Bible because there was no Bible at that time. The Bible wasn't compiled and printed until A.D. 400. That's when you had the first Bible, A.D. 400. It wasn't translated into English until 1382. The question we want to ask when we study Scripture 
in verse 12 is, what was the word of God to a Jewish person in AD 65? Because I'm not allowed to define terms in scripture. I can't just come up with what I think it means. I've got to allow scripture to determine and to define terms for us and for me. And when we study the scriptures, the three-step process to study in is observation, interpretation, and application. Observation is asking questions. You ask as many questions as you can about the verses in the book that you're studying. And so in observation, for example, you come to verse 12, it says, for the word of God is alive and active. The question we want to ask is, what is the word of God? That's the first question. Another question would be, what is the word of God to the original reader of the book of Hebrews? And then we seek to answer these questions so we can determine what the meaning is and get into interpretation. What does it mean? So in AD 65, when a Jewish person would have read this letter in Hebrews and they would have come across Hebrews 4.12, and again, it wasn't written in chapters and verses to the original reader. They're just reading a letter and they would have come, come across this phrase, for the word of God. The original reader in AD 65 would not have thought about, oh, that's talking about the Bible, because the Bible wasn't in existence. And so since the original reader would not have thought, oh, that's talking about the Bible, then we have to ask, well, what would they have thought about when they read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12? They would have thought about the law of Moses. They would have thought about the Old Testament. And that fits into the context of the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews is about two testaments. It's about the Old Testament of law, and it's about the New Testament of grace. And the Word of God being alive and sharp and active and judging the thoughts and the desires of the heart, that's what the law does. The law of God is an x-ray machine that reveals the sickness of the human heart, the sinfulness of the human heart, and then points us to the grace of Jesus. And that's exactly what's going on in Hebrews 4.12, even when we get into Hebrews 4.16, where it says, let us approach the throne of grace, that the law will convince people of sin and point them to the New Testament of grace. That's what Paul was doing in Romans. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing in the book of Hebrews. So when somebody is speaking about or teaching about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and they say the word of God is living and sharper, and they start talking about the Bible, well, it lets us know immediately that they're taking that verse out of its original context, and they're making application of it that's not as the writer of Hebrews intended. So this phrase the word of God being associated with the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments is first mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 32. Moses has given the law to the generation of people who had wandered in the desert for 40 years, and the generation that survived is now going into the promised land of Canaan. So he's given the law a second time to this group of people. They've already heard it once. And now they're hearing it for a second time. They're about to go into the promised land of Canaan. And Moses says to them these words, starting in Deuteronomy 5, 1, and we'll go through 5, 7. It says, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. 
The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Harab. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant. He's talking about the covenant of law, the old covenant of law that was given in Exodus 19, Exodus 20. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. Verse 4, the Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. That's Mount Sinai. That's Exodus 19 and 20. You can also read about that in Hebrews chapter 12. Talks about the mountain of Sinai, the mountain of law, the mountain of fear, compared to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is a city of grace. Mount Zion, a city of grace. It says, the Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. Verse 5, at that time, I, Moses, stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord or the word of God is associated here with the Old Covenant, with the Old Testament. And again, we're not talking about books. We're talking about the law of Moses that was given by God starting in Exodus 19, confirmed in Exodus 24, and was in existence until Jesus died on the cross when the New Testament or the New Covenant in his blood went into effect. And it was Moses who gave the law to the people. Moses said in verse 5, At that time, at the mountain, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord was the law of God, was the law of Moses, was the Ten Commandments, was the two great commandments, and all the other laws. At that time, I, Moses, stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. Saul in Exodus 19 and 20. And God said, and this is Moses quoting God, verse 6, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and he begins quoting the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And he goes through the Ten Commandments. So we see here that the word of the Lord is the Ten Commandments, the two great commandments, and all the other commandments that were given to Moses and through Moses to the people, uh, to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. Now look in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 14 through 16. And this is what Moses said. No, the word is very near you, the word, right? The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you to, here it is, to love the Lord your God. That's, that's, one of, that's the first of the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and others as yourself to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. So we see that the word of the Lord is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the Ten Commandments. We saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It's the commands of God, the decrees of God, the laws of God to the people of Israel that they were to keep. Now, Psalm 119 talks a lot about the Word of God. But when most people read Psalm 119, they assume Psalm 119 is talking about the Bible. The problem with that is the Bible wasn't written when Psalm 119 was written. The Bible was not compiled. The Bible wasn't even in existence yet when Psalm 119 was written. So Psalm 119 cannot be talking about the Bible. 
So the question is, if Psalm 119 is not talking about the Bible, then what is Psalm 119 talking about? And what Psalm 119 is talking about is the law of Moses that God gave to Moses and Moses gave to the people. All right, let's read in Psalm 119. I'll show you how it connects to the Word of God. Psalm 119, starting in verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to, here it is, it tells us, here's what Psalm 119 is all about, who walk according to the law of the Lord. So Psalm 119 is not about the Bible. Psalm 119 is about the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, the two great commandments, all the other decrees given by God through Moses to the nation of Israel that they were to adhere to, that they were to keep, if they were going to be blessed. If they didn't keep those commandments, then they would be under a curse. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes. That's the law of Moses. Seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. That's the law of the Lord, the Ten Commandments, the two great commandments, all the other commandments that God gave. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. So Psalm 119 is obviously talking about the Ten Commandments, the two great commandments, and all the other commandments that were given by God through Moses to the nation of Israel. And to the person who could obey the commandments, they would experience a blessed life, a life of peace and joy and happiness and freedom as we read through that. So it's not talking about the Bible. Again, it's very important that we know that it's talking about the law of Moses. And so if we continue in Psalm 119, the law of the Lord is referred to as the word in Psalm 119. Let's look at some of these verses. There's a lot of these verses. We're just going to look at a couple of them. Psalm 119.9 is a very popular verse. It's a very popular memory verse. It reads, how can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? Now, most of the people, when they memorize that verse, are assuming that's talking about the Bible, but it's not. It's talking about the Ten Commandments in context. It's talking about the two great commandments in context. Your word is referring to the law. We're actually going to see in Romans 7, 7 through 25, about a man who tried to keep the law of the Lord, who tried to keep the word of the Lord, but in keeping the law, he actually sinned more. He didn't keep his way pure the law revealed the impurities of his heart. It brought out the impurities of his heart. Look at Psalm 119.11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So again, your word is referring to the Ten Commandments. It's referring to the two great commandments. It's referring to all the decrees that God gave Moses on the mountain to give to the people of Israel prior to entering into the promised land of Canaan. Again, we're going to see in, in Romans chapter 7, a man who delighted in the law, but in delighting in the law, he discovered how much of a sinner he was because the law revealed the depths of his sin. He even sinned more by trying to obey the Ten Commandments. He didn't sin less, he sinned more, which is what Romans 5.20 says, is that the law increases sin. Look at Psalm 119.16, I delight in your decrees. 
I will not neglect your word. The word that's referring here is not, well, I'm not going to neglect my daily Bible reading. Some people will quote that and they'll say, well, God says, don't neglect your daily Bible reading. Don't neglect your time in the word. Well, the word here is not referring to the Bible. The word here is referring to, again, the Ten Commandments, the two great commandments, and all the other laws. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect the Ten Commandments. I will not neglect the two great commandments. I will not neglect what's written in the law of Moses. I will seek to obey the law of Moses is what Psalm 119, 16 says. You can also look just throughout Psalm 19 at the different references to your word being connected to the law of Moses. So it's important to know that because we're trying to understand Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, The word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing spirit and soul, and judging the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. All right, that's the word of, the, of God that does that. So as a reminder, in Hebrews 4, 11 through 13, we're looking at the two reasons the writer of Hebrews is exhorting his Jewish brothers and sisters to enter into God's rest, which is the New Testament of grace. To leave the law of Moses, to leave Psalm 119 is what the book of Hebrews is about. It's time to leave Psalm 119 in trying to obey the law because the law has come to an end. You've got to exit Psalm 119 and you've got to enter into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Enter into the book of Romans, enter into the book of Hebrews, enter into the book of Galatians and Philippians where Paul teaches on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's able to do that because the ascended Jesus gave him the revelation of grace. That's why Paul in Romans says, we're not under law. You're not under Psalm 119. You're under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You relate to God through Jesus and not through Moses. Okay. So he's writing to the people to leave Psalm 119, to leave Deuteronomy, to leave Exodus, to leave Leviticus. And he gives two reasons of why they should leave the law. The first reason he gives, which we looked at in Hebrews teaching number 12 last week, is so that no one will perish in judgment prior to God establishing the new heaven and the new earth. And then the second reason he says to leave the law is because the Jewish people, the Hebrew people who were reading the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, is because they will be judged by the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments. If they pass judgment, they will escape wrath and will not perish. Thus, they would have eternal life. However, if they fail judgment, if they don't measure up to the Ten Commandments, if they don't measure up to the two great commandments, if they fail judgment, they will experience wrath and perish, thus missing eternal life. So let's read again Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest that's resting from our works, resting from Leviticus, resting from any type of effort to be right with God, because Jesus did it all for us. There's nothing left for us to do. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, 
it, the word of God, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I want us to notice the connection between verse 11 of Hebrews 4 and verse 12 of Hebrews 4 and verse 13. What happens is when pastors teach on Hebrews 4.12, they ignore the context. They ignore Hebrews 4.11. They ignore Hebrews 4.13. They ignore Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4 through verse 10. They ignore chapter 5 and 6, and they, they rip a verse out of context, and they misteach it to the audience, to their congregations, to those who are attending their Bible studies. There's a connection here between verse 12 and verse 11. You see the word for, verse 12, for the word of God? That's taking us back to verse 11. There's a connection there. Why should they make every effort to enter the spiritual rest of God. The first reason is so they will not perish in judgment. And the second reason is because the word, the word of God is active, it's alive, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And if they want to get into eternal life, if they want to avoid perishing in judgment, and they're depending upon their obedience to the word of God in Psalm 119, if they're depending upon their obedience to the law of Moses, then the very law that they're depending upon to get into eternal life is going to judge their thoughts and attitudes, and they're going to be rejected from having eternal life. Because when the, when the word of God, when the law of Moses, when the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments judges the thoughts and attitudes of their hearts, God's going to see everything every thought, every deed, every desire, incredible scrutiny of the human heart. And they're, they're going to say, wow, I have sinned, and I'm not going to be able to enter into eternal life because the law I was depending on to make me righteous is the law that shows me how unrighteous I am. That's important to see. Now, the question is, how does the law of the Lord, how does the word of God, how does the law of Moses, how does the Ten Commandments, how does the two great commandments judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart? Well, a great place to start is how did Jesus use the Ten Commandments? How did Jesus use the two great commandments, the word of God, as the Hebrew people would have understood the Ten and two great commandments? How did Jesus use them to reveal the sinful thoughts and attitudes of the heart? Well, let's start with the Ten Commandments. Jesus used the Ten Commandments to reveal the sinful thoughts and attitudes of the heart of people. Look at Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. It says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Don't they wash their hands before they eat? Verse 3, And Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God? Now, the command there is the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, which is honor your father and mother. They're asking Jesus a question. Jesus asked them a question back, and in his question, he's accusing them of breaking the very law that they're trying to keep to be righteous so they can have eternal life. 
Jesus replied to them, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. So Jesus is quoting Exodus 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy 5, 16. And Jesus goes on to say, Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. That's Exodus 21, 17, and Leviticus 20, verse 9. Jesus goes on to say, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God. So he's quoting the Pharisees to say, boy, if something's devoted to God, don't use that to help your mom and dad because it's devoted to God. Jesus says, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, verse six, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Again, Jesus is quoting the Pharisees there and and their beliefs. And then Jesus says this, Thus you, talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, thus you nullify, look what Jesus calls the Ten Commandments right here. You nullify the Word of God. Jesus is not talking about the Bible there when he uses this phrase, the Word of God. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. It's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. He's talking about the Ten Commandments, the two great commandments, the law of Moses. And Jesus is using the law to convince these men that they're sinners, they're lawbreakers. The very law they're trying to keep to be righteous is the very law that's showing them that they're unrighteous and they're in need of grace. So that's important to understand. We've got to see how did Jesus use the phrase, the word of God, not to refer to the Bible. That was an impossibility. The Bible wasn't compiled until around AD 400. He's using this phrase, the word of God, to refer to specifically here, the Ten Commandments. All right, well, let's continue to look at how Jesus used the word of God, the Ten Commandments, And later, the two great commandments, we'll look how he used those as well, to reveal the sinful thoughts and attitudes of the heart, which is what the Ten Commandments do, which is what the two great commandments do. They reveal the sinfulness of the heart, which is what's going on in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. It reveals the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, lays our hearts open so that it can be seen the sinfulness of the human heart. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 through 22 about the Ten Commandments. He says, you have heard that it was said to the ancients or our previous ancestors of the past, do not murder. So he's quoting the Ten Commandments. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you that everyone being angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever shall say to his brother Raka will be liable to the Sanhedrin. But whoever shall say fool will be liable to the Guiana of fire, meaning judgment. Notice what Jesus does here with the law, that breaking the law of thou shalt not murder doesn't start with a person's hands. It starts with a person's heart. Murder starts with anger in the heart. So Jesus is saying, you may have never murdered anybody with your hands, but you've broken the law if you've been angry with them in your heart. That gets all of us. So the law is judging the thoughts and the desires and the intentions of the heart and declaring all of us guilty and showing us our need for grace. Jesus does the same in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, quoting the Ten Commandments. 
But I say to you that everyone looking upon a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what he's saying is here is adultery doesn't happen with the physical act. Adultery starts with the attitude of the heart toward another person. And so again, whether it's male or female, it puts everybody as guilty, guilty of murder, guilty of adultery. Even though somebody may have never carried out their actions physically, inside we're all guilty. Verse 29, Jesus says, And if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is, it is better for you that one of your members should perish, one of the parts of your body should perish. That word perish goes back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Perishing, perishing, okay? And we looked at that in teaching number 12 and all the verses in Psalms and all the verses in Proverbs and, and other parts of the Jewish scriptures about this spiritual truth of perishing can't enter eternal life. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the people of Israel wanted eternal life, and they thought eternal life was through obedience to the law of Moses. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, listen, if you think obedience to the law is what makes you righteous and gains you entrance into eternal life, if your right eye will cause you to look at someone in lust and pluck out your right eye, he's taking them to their, their logical conclusion of their false belief system that they can earn their way into eternal life and avoid perishing in judgment by carrying out the Ten Commandments. He said, listen, if you're afraid you're going to commit adultery, then gouge out your eye. If you're afraid you're going to steal something, cut off your hand. He's just taking them to their logical conclusion in this. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is better for you that one of your members should perish. There's the word perish again. Very familiar with the Jewish people. And not that your whole body should depart into Gihana or into judgment. The second thing we see with Jesus is he uses the two great commandments. We just saw how he used the Ten Commandments. He also uses the two great commandments to re reveal the sinful thoughts and attitudes of the heart. He does this with the story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus reveals the hatred in the heart of the expert in the law. It says this in the story of the Good Samaritan. We'll read some of it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to an inherit eternal life and avoid perishing in judgment? And Jesus said to this expert in the law, well, what is written in the law? And the expert in the law replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's the first of the two great commandments. That's in Deuteronomy 6, 5. And the expert in the law said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second of the two great commandments. That's Leviticus 19, 18. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, obey the two great commandments, and you will live or you will have eternal life. But the man who wanted to justify himself asked Jesus this, and who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus tells a story that we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus makes the Good Samaritan the hero of the story. Now, the irony of this is that the hero of the story is the Good Samaritan, but the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they hated the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans with a passion. 
And so when Jesus gets to the end of, end of this story, the hero of the story being the Good Samaritan, Jesus asks the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Remember, the man asked Jesus, well, who was my neighbor? So Jesus is telling the story to answer this man's question, who was my neighbor? So Jesus follows up his story with a question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He hated the Samaritan. And look what Jesus tells him to do. Go and do likewise. I mean, this is an amazing story. Here's what he's telling the Samaritan. I want you to go love other people exactly like the one that you hate. And if you will go love other people like the one that you hate, then you will have eternal life. But this guy was already disqualified from eternal life because he had hatred in his heart. So Jesus reveals anger in the heart in Matthew 5. He reveals lust in the heart in Matthew 5. He reveals anger in the heart using the law one of the two great commandments in Luke chapter 10. I believe that's where the story is. And then he does the same thing. He uses both the 10 commandments and the two great commandments in his communication with the rich young ruler. Now the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he wants to know what he has to do to enter into eternal life. And he tells Jesus, I've obeyed the commandments ever since I was a child. And then Jesus in the conversation with him tells him to go sell everything and give to the poor. And what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing this man to the revelation of the sinfulness of his heart using the word of God, not the Bible, but the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments, which is what Jesus did in Matthew 15 when the Pharisees and the experts of the law and the teachers of the law were asking Jesus, why did his disciples break the traditions of the elders? And then Jesus says, why do you break the commandments of God to keep your traditions? And he refers to the Ten Commandments as the word of God. So what Jesus is doing is he's using the word of God, the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments to reveal anger in the heart, to reveal lust in the heart, to reveal hatred in the heart, and here to reveal greed in this man's heart because the man wouldn't sell all of his possessions and give to the poor. Jesus was telling this man that you love money more than you love God. You love money more than you love people. Money has become your God. And the disciples heard this conversation. It can be found in Matthew 19, 16 through 26, Mark. 10, 17 through 27. And they heard that this man had been trying to keep the law of Moses his entire life, the Ten Commandments, and he would not be able to enter into eternal life. And so the disciples asked a question. They said, well, then Jesus, who can be saved? If this man can't be saved and he has put effort into obeying the law his entire life, well, then who can be saved? Who can escape perishing in judgment and experience eternal life? And Jesus answered this way, says, what is impossible with man, salvation through keeping the law of Moses, salvation through not neglecting the word of God in Psalms, through trying to obey Psalm 119, the Ten Commandments, living according to Psalm 119, what's impossible with man, salvation through obedience to the law, is possible with God, meaning Man can't achieve salvation for themselves through obedience to the law, but God can achieve salvation for us by grace that he's given us in Jesus. Now, in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul gives insight into how the law judges the hidden or the secrets of the heart. 
which is what is being referred to in Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13. Paul writes in Romans 2, 12 through 16, all who sin apart from the law, that's the Gentiles in context, will also perish. There's that word again that goes back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law, that's the Jews, will be judged by the law. So we see that the law is the standard of judgment here. Even on the Gentiles, we'll see that in a minute. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. The problem is nobody obeys the law. Nobody can obey Psalm chapter 119, the Ten Commandments, the two great commandments. All right, that's the point Paul's making in Romans so that people will see that they need the grace of the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their, the Gentiles' hearts. So the Jews had the law written on stone. The Gentiles had the law written on their hearts, which puts everybody under the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. They know that stealing, stealing, and lying is lying, and adultery is adultery, and murder is murder, and stealing, stealing, and coveting is coveting. Dishonoring your parents is wrong. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. Verse 16, this judgment of people by the law will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets or their hidden thoughts, their hidden motives, their hidden desires, their secrets, things that no one else can see is going to be judged by God through Jesus. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. That goes directly with Hebrews chapter 4, 11 through 13, when the law, the word of God, lays bare the thoughts of the heart, the desires of the heart, the intentions of the heart, and everything is laid bare and is uncovered and seen by God. These are synonymous of each other. Look what Romans three nineteen through 20 says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that's both the Jew and Gentile, so that every mouth, whether Jew or Gentile, may be silenced. What do we say to God who saw every desire we've ever had, who saw every thought we've ever had, who saw every deed we've ever had, and he holds the law up to judge us according to judge our thoughts and our, our desires and our deeds against the law? What do we say to God when he says, you're a lawbreaker? I saw your deeds. I saw the thought. I saw the desire. I saw the anger. I saw the lust. I saw the hatred. I saw the greed. I saw the coveting. We're all lawbreakers. And that's the point Paul's making in Romans because he's going to introduce grace, salvation by grace and not by law, which brings hope. So we now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Again, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. He's saying it in a different way, but it's the exact same thing. We're held accountable to God. That's the last words in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Therefore, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell the Hebrew people. 
That's why it says, enter God's rest. Stop working, stop working by seeking to obey the old covenant of law, because the old covenant of law is going to show how sinful you are. And the old covenant of law was created to point you to the new covenant of grace. But if you reject grace and stay with the law, you're going to perish in judgment. That's what Paul is saying. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Therefore, through the law, we become fully aware of our sins. That's what Hebrews 12 and 13 is saying as well. So Romans 3, 19 through 20 is talking about the law. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 doesn't use the word the law. It uses the word of God. But that, again, is talking about the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments. They're synonymous with one another. Both reveal the secrets of the heart. Both reveal the hidden thoughts and the desires. Both tell us that we're going to have to give an account to God. And both are telling us, don't depend upon the law. Leave the works of the law and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the new covenant of grace. Romans and Hebrews are teaching us the same thing. They're just using different terminology. The writers are. Look in Romans 7, 7 through 25, where Paul provides an example of the law exposing the sinful desires of the heart of a person who is seeking to obey the law to be righteous, but in seeking to obey the law to be righteous and to gain eternal life, he discovers that he's a very sinful person and a very sick person, and he cries out in desperation for salvation, and he says, who will deliver me from death? Even though I've tried to obey the law, I'm in a very desperate situation. Look at Romans 7, 7 through 25. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, that's the 10th of the 10 commandments. It's the only commandment that is internal. All the other commandments are external. This is the one that's internal. And if I break this 10th commandment internally, then I break them all. And that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5. He says, if you're coveting another person's spouse, husband, wife, you've broken the law of adultery. If you're angry with that person, if you've broken the law of murder, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying in our hearts, we've broken all the laws. If you hate this person, you've broken the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And Love your neighbor as yourself. If I have hatred to another person, I've broken those two commandments. And in breaking the commandments, there's no second chance to get it right. It's pass or fail. And if you break one commandment, it's fail. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That's what Paul is saying in this illustration. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the Lord said, you shall not covet, but sin, verse 8, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, you shall not covet, that's commandment number 10, Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead, and once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, you shall not covet, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment, thou shalt not covet, that was intended to bring life, actually brought death. So Psalm 119 tells us, if you can live according to the commandments, you will have a good life. You will be righteous. You will be blessed. So here is a man who's delighting in the law. How do we know that this man delights in the law? Look at verse 22 of Romans 7. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. This person loves Psalm 119. It was probably his favorite chapter in the book of Psalms. He loved it. 
It was his goal not to neglect the law. He understood if I can keep law number 10, I can keep one through nine. But he couldn't do it. And he began to sin all the more. The commandment intended to bring life actually brought death because breaking the law, the penalty for breaking the law is death. And he's sinning all the more by keeping the Ten Commandments. The more he tries to keep the commandments, the more he sins, which is the point Paul makes in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, when he says the law increases sin. Romans 5, 20, the Ten Commandments increase sin. So we will see our need for Jesus. That's exactly what's going on in Romans 7, 7 through 25. Sin is increasing in this man's life through the law of Moses, then pointing him to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this in verse 22, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Look at this desperation. What a wretched man that I am. Man, I want to be right before God. I want to have eternal life. I want to be righteous. I know that it's dependent upon my ability to obey the law of Moses. I want God to bless me. I know it's dependent upon my ability to obey the law of Moses. And it's not just one through nine that I have to obey. It's one through 10. And breaking one law is equal to breaking all laws. He says, I'm in a wretched situation. I'm trying to obey the law, but I'm sinning all the more, the more I try to obey the law. Sometimes people will say, well, Brad, shouldn't we try to get people to sin less by telling them to obey the Ten Commandments? And I will say, well, let's see what Scripture says. The Bible tells us that that the more we try to obey the Ten Commandments, the more we will sin. So I'll point them to Scripture to answer their question. No, we don't want to try to get people under the law of Moses so they'll sin less because Scripture tells us that the power of sin is the law. So why would we want to do that? We want to get them to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we want to get them to, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to mix law and grace. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death because the penalty for breaking the law is death and I've broken the law. And he says this, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you see how the law pointed out his sin and then pointed him to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what the writer of Romans does, Paul, and it's the exact same thing the writer of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews chapter 4, 11 through 13, or really 11 through 16, chapter 4, 11 through 16. All right, so remember, we're looking in the Hebrews 4, 12 about the word of God being the law. It exposes the sinful desires and the attitudes of the heart. Now that we have seen how Jesus and Paul used the law, consisting of the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments, to reveal the sinful attitudes and thoughts of the heart, let's go back now to Hebrews chapter 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, resting from our works, resting in the work of Jesus, not our works, but resting in the work of Jesus, So we want to make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. How do we enter into God's rest? By believing. We've talked a lot about that in our other studies, by believing, by trusting in Jesus. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of the Lord, for the word of God, that's the Ten Commandments, that's the two great commandments, is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Jesus used it with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus used it with the rich young ruler. Jesus used it when he told the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus used it when he talked about if you've had anger in your heart, if you've had lust in your heart. 
you've committed adultery with lust, and you've, you've murdered with anger. So Jesus is using the Ten Commandments as a sword, and he's exposing the sinfulness of the heart. That's the context. That, that's how the Jewish people would have understood that. That's exactly how Jesus used it. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We saw Jesus using it that same way. We saw this happening in Romans 7, 7 through 25. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight because the law exposes our hearts. Everything is uncovered by the law and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's exactly what Romans 3, 19 through 20 is talking about. So let's put this in the context. The Hebrew people were depending upon adhering to the requirements of Leviticus for the purification for sins. This is the immediate context. They were depending upon Leviticus and practicing the law of Moses for forgiveness and cleansing from sins, thinking that if we do this, we'll escape perishing in the wrath to come. However, the word of God, which is the law, the Ten Commandments, and the two great commandments, exposed the sins of the heart, anger, lust, hatred, coveting, greed. Adhering to the requirements of Leviticus cannot touch the sins of the heart. That's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. The sacrificial system in Leviticus cannot forgive or cleanse internally the sins of the heart. The requirements of Leviticus cannot internally forgive the sins of anger and lust and hatred and coveting. But what the Old Testament of law can't do, the New Testament of grace has done. That's the blood of Christ. Jesus has provided full forgiveness of sins and cleansing from sins, including sins of the heart, anger, lust, greed, coveting, hatred. The blood of Jesus forgives those sins, cleanses the heart, but the law of Moses can't do that. Only the blood of Jesus can forgive the sins we commit internally and cleanse us from those sins. And that's the point the writer of Hebrews makes in Hebrews 9, 9 through 14. He writes, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the worshiper. That's the gifts and sacrifices associated with the book of Leviticus. These gifts and sacrifices associated with the book of Leviticus are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying to the time of the new order. What's the new order? The new covenant of grace established in the blood of Jesus. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things, that's the new covenant of grace that are already here, the new covenant of grace, full forgiveness and complete cleansing of sins, permanent purification of sins internally. Jesus went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. It's referring to heaven there. Verse 12, Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, obtaining eternal redemption. That's full forgiveness of sins and complete cleansing of sins internally and eternally. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. That's talking about the book of Leviticus again. Sanctify them or makes them outwardly holy, outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences? That's internal forgiveness, internal cleansing of sins from acts that lead to death. What are the acts that lead to death? Hatred, coveting, anger, lust, breaking the commands of God. 
All right, Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. For this reason, the law can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship God. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers under the law would have been cleansed once and for all by practicing the law of Moses and would have no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But the law can't touch the sins of the heart. God sets aside the first, that's the Old Covenant or the Old Testament of law, to establish the second, that's the New Testament of grace. And he's not talking about books there. He's talking about the blood of Christ, the New Testament of grace. And by that will, the New Testament of grace established in the blood of Jesus, we have been made holy, internally forgiven, internally cleansed from all sins, and eternally forgiven and cleansed from all sins through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. All right, Hebrews 4, 11 through 13, one more time. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, resting from our works, resting in Jesus's works, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Here's a simple way to put this. Would I rather stand before God trusting in my works, or would I rather stand before God trusting in the work of Christ on the cross? That's the point the writer's making. He's telling the Hebrew people, you can stand before God trusting in your ability to obey the Ten Commandments, but it's not going to work because the Ten Commandments, the Word of God judges your heart, and you're not as good as you think you are. Or you can stand before God trusting in Jesus. That, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying in this book. Trusting in the law or trusting in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It, the word of God, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the two great commandments, judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered by the law and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's scary right there. That's why the writer of Hebrews is saying, exit the law, because it's going to show your sin and come to Jesus who took your sins upon himself at the cross. You won't enter into that judgment if you come to faith in Christ because all your sins were nailed to the cross. God will remember your sins no more in the new covenant. They're all forgiven in the new covenant. So what's the point the writer of Hebrews is making in Hebrews 4, 11 through 13? He's telling the Jewish people that judgment is coming when God will remove all sin and sinners. That's the unrighteous, the ungodly, the wicked, which is everybody apart from Christ. I taught about that in Hebrews teaching number 12. You can also look in Romans 1, 16 through 20 that shows everybody's ungodly, everybody's wicked, everybody's unrighteous, and we all need Jesus. And then we become clean and pure and holy and righteous and blameless before God through Christ. But the day is going to come when judgment is coming from God. He will remove all sin and sinners from the earth in preparation for the kingdom of God, the new earth in preparation for eternal life. The only way to experience salvation and escape from perishing in the judgment to come is by entering God's rest. It's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. This promised land of grace, this New Testament of grace established in the blood of Jesus and flowing with complete cleansing of sins and full forgiveness of sins and eternal life where it's all free. Practicing the works of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament of Leviticus and Deuteronomy for forgiveness of sins cannot internally touch the sins of the heart, which the law of Moses exposes and lays bare. The word of God exposes the sins of the heart, and the law cannot cleanse or forgive those sins. 
the word of God, which is the law, the Ten Commandments, and the two great commandments, will judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart's own judgment day. That's what Romans 2 is saying. That's what Hebrews chapter 4, 12 through 13 is saying. Now, notice that the word of God is living and active. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart so that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight so that everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Notice that nothing and no one will escape this judgment. Everything and everyone will be judged. Every internal sin and external sin will be exposed and judged. That's why the writer of Hebrews is saying, make every effort to enter into the new covenant of grace because the old covenant of law is going to expose you as a sinner, and in judgment, God wipes all the sinners off the face of the earth. They will not be in the new heaven and the new earth. Look what Solomon writes about in Ecclesiastes 12, 14. He writes about this. He says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, along with every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So the only way to escape this judgment is by leaving the Old Testament of law and entering into the New Testament of grace, where God remembers our sins no more, where we have been purified from all sins, forgiven and cleansed internally and eternally, and where we've been justified or declared to be righteous by God, then we won't go into this judgment. The judgment isn't for believers, it's unbelievers. Salvation is for believers. We've been saved by grace. Saved from what? Saved from judgment. Saved from wrath saved into eternal life. Now, the way a Jewish believer could leave behind the Old Testament of law, the sacrifices, the Sabbaths, and the festivals, would be by faith in Jesus, by believing that Jesus in his blood has established a new covenant or a new way of relating to God. So through believing, they would enter God's rest. They would rest from their works, and they would rest in the work of Christ. By doing this, the Jewish believers could rest from the works of the law and also rest knowing they would escape perishing in the wrath to come and enjoy living in the kingdom to come. Now, this message just isn't for the Jewish nation. It's for all people. Judgment is coming for all people. God ultimately is going to remove all sin and sinners from the earth and is creating a new earth that is the home of righteousness where only righteous people will live. Well, the law tells us that all are unrighteous, but God is offering the gift of righteousness to us through Jesus because at the cross, he took our sinfulness and he's offering us his righteousness. And how do we receive the righteousness of Jesus? By faith. And when we put our faith in Jesus and we're given the righteousness of Jesus and we're declared to be righteous, we stop working to be right with God. And we start resting knowing we're right with God because of what Jesus has done for us. That's what Paul is saying in Romans. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying in the letter to the Hebrews. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org. And you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.